Ocarina of Time's profound messaging and place in the world was something that only became fully apparent with, well, time. It left an immeasurable impact on the industry when it first released, and it only became more resonant with age. One of the narrative's crucial themes was nostalgia, and it addressed our attachment to the happiest days of our youth. This not only ended up being an introspective commentary on nostalgia for those that grew up with the game, but its words ended up being a meta-reflection of how perceptions of Ocarina of Time have changed, and how we can acknowledge the passage of time. In other words, it's a game about growing up. Now, Nintendo couldn't have anticipated their own game's legacy, and its immediate success no doubt put immense pressure on the team. A demo at Space World 2000 previewed what people were hoping would be the next Ocarina of Time, but the team was burnt out on creating Zelda games in this style. So rather than trying to emulate the success of their previous game, they did something that took a great deal of courage. They experimented. First, they developed a systematically driven and bittersweet adventure through the ephemeral world of Termina. It may have carried over the gameplay cornerstones established by its predecessor, but it couldn't be more different otherwise. It was clear that they weren't about to let the success of Ocarina of Time cloud their judgment. Ocarina of Time's release had come and gone, and a game attempting to follow closely in its footsteps wouldn't recapture that magic. It was time to move on. Each subsequent game in the series could be viewed as an opportunity to start fresh. A chance for the youth of tomorrow to know courage like the hero of time. While a great story can inspire courage, it isn't something that you can inherit. It's something that you develop over the course of your own life. To know true courage, you must forge your own path. Wind Waker's title screen says so much with so little. We pan across Outset Island, the genesis of this story. It's a quaint little island with not much going on, but the music seems to paint a much grander picture. The element that completes this picture is Link. He is standing at the peak of the island, staring out into the ocean. This, combined with what we're hearing, infers a longing for adventure. A desire to leave the island and explore the unexplored. An urge to leave home and see what the world has in store. In other words, it's a game about growing up. Ocarina of Time and Wind Waker are two sides of the same coin, a similar lesson split between two very distinct outlooks. Whereas Ocarina of Time was about gently letting go of your nostalgic attachments and moving forward, Wind Waker is an exciting coming-of-age story about maturity, freedom, the navigation of life, and not being defined by those that came before you. A message that was almost certainly deliberate. After its new art style received a mixed response at Space World 2001, Ocarina of Time's colossal legacy cast a massive shadow over the team, and their frustration bled into their work. They stood by their creative vision, and put out something intended to inspire a new generation. I was a part of that new generation. I may have been playing other Zeldas at the time, but Wind Waker was the first Zelda game I managed to finish. It didn't just define my taste in video games. It ended up being instrumental in my development as a person. It is my favorite game of all time. As such, this video aims to delve deep into what I feel makes Wind Waker the game that it is. Everything that defined it, and how it defined me. It feels so good to finally say this, so here goes. I'm Liam Triforce, and this is a video about The Legend of Zelda The Wind Waker.
The tale of the legendary hero puts a dark spin on a familiar melody. After the hero of time was sent back to relive the missing years of his youth, Hyrule was left without a hero to save it. Because of this, traditions have fallen into place over the past several years to keep his and the kingdom's memory alive. Hanging shields adorned with the royal family's crest, garbing young boys in green when they come of age, and at one point, even training them in the ways of the sword. Of course, these traditions were put in place long before our character was born, and all we really need to do in order to understand how he feels about these traditions is observe his facial expressions. This is an utterly brilliant introduction to one of the game's predominant themes, as well as a humorous way to demonstrate Wind Waker's distinct visual style. These traditions may seem as though they exist to keep the memory of the Hero of Time alive, but if Link is serving as an example here, it's that young boys don't want to have anything to do with the legend. And I mean, why would they? They were born long after the kingdom was dead and buried, and all they really want to do is live for the present. Even Link, although he is pretty lazy, barely even knows what day it is. He is respectful and listens to his grandmother as she tells him about these old traditions, but he is pretty aloof in this first portion of the game. Perhaps this is due to his circumstances. He's a boy caught up in an old-fashioned tradition, on a small island in a vast ocean. Maybe it's hard for him to put on a happy face without something to get excited about. Earlier I mentioned that whatever Nintendo put out next would exist in the shadow of Ocarina of Time. Well, this is reflected in Link's situation here, and it becomes even more apparent as you take control of him for the first time. Many parallels can be drawn between the Kokiri Forest and Outset Island jumping across platforms for rupees, a Z-targeting tutorial presented without consequence, you can find tunnels to crawl into for rewards, you can fetch a sword and shield based on your own knowledge of the island, and there's a room full of tips and tricks to learn about. You can even hear a bit of Kokiri Forest melody in the theme for Outset Island. Now on the other hand, what if you've never played Ocarina of Time before? It's only natural that the mechanical groundwork laid out by Ocarina would eventually bleed into other Zelda games, so it makes sense to carry over these teaching tools. But what does this Link do differently? Well the primary difference here is how you can inspire people and leave a positive impact. In Ocarina of Time, most of your time is spent preparing for your meeting with the Great Deku Tree. There is a sense of urgency there that compels you to keep moving forward. You aren't really doing things for anyone else, your only goal is to figure out how to play and accept the Great Deku Tree's grand trial. From the word go on Outset Island, all that really matters is talking to your grandmother and then your sister afterwards, which is likely something that your character does every day. Not to mention, you're doing this as part of some tradition that you don't really want to be a part of, especially if you've never played Ocarina of Time. But as you learn to perform these tasks on the way to your grandma's house, you'll no doubt notice these colorful characters walking around. If you decide to jump across these rocks for rupees, you can talk to the kid watching you and he'll say, Wow, I hope I'll be able to jump like you someday, Link. If you fetch some pigs for this man and his wife, you'll be rewarded with a few rupees and their sincere gratitude. The same gratitude is also expressed by this man trying to cut his grass, if you decide to cut it for him. Even Beetle is elated by your presence. Although he claims to sail the entire ocean selling goods, when you leave the shop, he looks down in sorrow. He acts as though you're his only customer. To be alone at sea like that, it's nice to keep him company, especially because Beetle's company is more than welcome. Although it may not seem like much, this tutorial does let you discover mechanics on your own, which in turn sets you up for the kind of freedom that this game enables. Sure, your next destination may be clear, but there's nothing wrong with venturing off into the unknown for a while in order to prepare, 
learn, and inspire others. The most poignant resident you inspire is met at a dire moment. After your sister loans you her telescope for your birthday, the both of you are startled by a giant bird carrying a girl in its talons. A pirate ship manages to knock it out of the sky, but the girl falls into the forest above outset. This is just the kind of excitement that Link needs. Remember when I mentioned that Link was presumed to be listening to his grandmother, even if he didn't entirely understand the point of this tradition? Well, you can directly provide proof of that respect Link was showing by heeding her words and seeking out Orca, the only person on the island still knowledgeable about sword fighting. Orca is an old-fashioned man, dedicated to a long-forgotten art form, but he senses urgency in you and offers to train you. Orca differs from those trying to uphold the legend in a crucial way. He may be keeping an old tradition alive by staying privy to the ways of the sword, but by training you, he's providing you with the tools for you to shape your own destiny. He understands that he has no control over what Link does, but because Outset Island no longer regularly trains boys who come of age in sword fighting, he can decide who is truly deserving of that power. With that in mind, Orca senses good intentions in you, and he is compelled to entrust you with the sword. You'd better not let him down. As you cut down those trees and climb up to the top of the mountain, you'll notice the music of Outset Island fades into silence. Up here is the first time you've had true freedom from your home, but it's also the first time you've been completely alone. The game is giving you a moment of repose, so that you can ask yourself if you're ready to face what lies ahead. Of course, most people are just going to rush into the forest and beat up the Bokoblins in order to save the girl, but by doing so, you're proving that moment of silence right. Maybe you shouldn't be so gung-ho about acting like a grown-up and rescuing that girl, no matter how exciting that might be. Because before you know it, you'll have left your childhood behind. And if the Hero of Time wasn't ready for that, you must ask yourself, are you ready for that too? After Errol is kidnapped, the music is subtly altered. First of all, this is what Errol's theme sounds like. Outside Island's background music uses this melody twice. Once here... And again here. It's probably one of the most comforting melodies in the game, primarily because it is attached to the time you spend with your sister. But with her gone, the music is oddly unfamiliar. The strings now descend in place of where her melody used to be.
it's still composed in such a way that it reminds you you're home, but it isn't the same as it once was. From now on, it is a constant reminder that Errol is somewhere out there and you need to get her back. This entire occurrence is a prime example of how trauma can force someone to grow up. Life is a constant, unpredictable series of events that you usually don't have any control over, and certain events can stomp out the twilight of your youth. In Link's case, it was the immediate responsibility of having to leave home and save his sister. It really sucks to lose out on the rest of your childhood, especially due to circumstances beyond you. It can be frustrating, and it can be easy to sink into our memories from those days. But instead of sulking, and instead of following the same emotional venture that the Hero of Time faced, Link's first instinct is to do something about his kidnapped sister. Whether that means running off a cliff trying to chase after that bird, or asking for help from the pirates, Link is willing to do anything he can. He's taking such a tragic event and turning it into an opportunity to set sail. In contrast to the Hero of Time, who needed some guidance in growing up, Link is taking that step on his own. As far as I'm concerned, Wind Waker's Link isn't just a bridge between the player and the game. He's also a character, one that acts and reacts of his own volition, and one that has flaws. But most importantly, we can understand why he reacts the way he does. He inspires me to do something in spite of my circumstances. To view tragedy as an opportunity to learn or act. Both Ocarina of Time and Wind Waker handle its calls to adventure differently, and both are equally valid. But it's clear that Link was never meant to be a reflection of the Hero of Time. Finally, he has his own reason to set sail. His own adventure. All he wants to do is get out there and save his sister. What happens along the way will be exciting to discover. There's just one thing left to be done. As you leave your childhood home, you're also leaving your grandmother behind. As a new chapter in your life begins, a chapter in hers ends. One of her grandkids is missing, and the other is setting off to save her. No matter what happens, she'll be forced to stay at home, alone, until your eventual return. Both of your kids leaving the house at once is an emotional time for a parent or guardian, which makes Link's goodbye one of the most heartbreaking scenes in the game. Tetra poking fun at your sentimentality ends up being a very clear sign of something that you may not be ready to admit to yourself. You're not quite ready to leave. In our rush to gain independence or discover the world, we tend to learn things the hard way. Sometimes we need to do a little more learning and a little more growing first. Now it's totally understandable why Link would want to take that step. But an obvious step is about to turn into a massive, daunting leap for him and Wind Waker portrays this in the best way it knows how. Gameplay. Our first venture means awkwardly trying to fit in with the pirates. They don't exactly make you feel welcome, and you just kind of have to meander your way below deck looking for something to do. The only character that you end up gelling with is Nico, mainly because the both of you are outcasts. Otherwise, he treats you like his swabby and tests your platforming skills. Then comes the invasion of the Forsaken Fortress. If there were ever a more perfect visual analogy for rushing into things, it would be this. Just this entire scene. This analogy extends to the concept of the dungeon itself. After smacking into the fortress head-on, your sword flies out of its scabbard. To clear this dungeon, you'll have to do it without a method of defending yourself. Equipped with nothing but your wits, you'll have to disable the searchlights while scavenging for weapons, and sneak past moblins in barrels. 
You can even branch out and search for treasure while you're sneaking around if you feel so inclined. Your approach to this dungeon is completely non-linear. It doesn't matter where you decide to go as long as you end up climbing to the top. Only one searchlight needs to be disabled, the one aimed at Errol's window. But figuring that out is the best part. The design of this dungeon builds on the tutorial's subtle push for exploration, and it carries the thematic throughline of being in a rush to mature by putting you in such an uncomfortable position so early on. But there's no turning back now. Picking my sword back up and cutting down that lone Bokoblin is such a gratifying moment because it represents conquering a challenge that I was initially unprepared for, which is a common occurrence when faced with the unpredictability of growing up. Speaking of which, Link may have been able to make it to his sister's cell, but he is overpowered by that pesky bird known as the Helmarok King, and thrown out to sea as commanded by a mysterious figure. We may have the courage to rise to such an occasion, but nowhere near enough experience. After being rescued by a talking boat known as the King of Red Lions, Link finds himself on the shores of Windfall Island. This is where Wind Waker establishes once more that while our objective is very clear, in this case it's buying a sail, there's no reason we shouldn't be taking our time. Windfall is a bustling commercial district that acts as a central hub of sorts for the Great Sea. There's plenty of things to do and plenty of people to talk to, so much so that it can be a bit overwhelming. It's like moving to a new place. It may seem daunting at first to take all of this in, but if you choose to step out of your comfort zone and seek out tasks, information, and the like, it'll eventually feel like home, and you'll become an irreplaceable part of their community. It just requires courage to take that step. And maybe a lot of sploosh kaboom. We'll discuss the specifics of what Windfall Island contributes to the game's design and its thesis much later. For now, we need to understand how the game opens up to us. Up until this point, we faced a lot of harsh realities. Losing our childhood, failing to save our sister despite having the courage to do so, facing the consequences of rushing into things out of an eagerness to mature. But we've still maintained that courage we began with, and now, we're about to be given a playground in which we can foster that courage. A place that we can make our own with just a touch of bravery, memorization, and intellect. A place to learn, struggle, fight, explore, grow. Welcome to the Great Sea. The Great Sea is one of the most liberating settings for a video game I have ever experienced. It managed to create one of the most open-ended venues for exploration in a Zelda game since the 1980s, and with a series of gentle nudges, it encouraged freedom and discovery in an unprecedented manner for a Zelda game of its era. It struck a perfect balance between the established conventions of Zelda and the spirit of the game that started it all. And despite all of this freedom, I feel as though it is the most accessible overworld a Zelda game has ever had. It employs elements of memorization, curiosity, and atmosphere, and blends them all beautifully together. I have so much to say about the Great Sea that it's hard to decide where to begin. So I'll walk you through it bit by bit. We'll be able to see how the Great Sea evolves as it instills discovery, establishes its general mechanics, gradually offers freedom, and everything in between. Let's start with the stuff that happens before you first set sail with the King of Red Lions. When you are first inspired by the world around you. As we've discussed, Outset gives you things to discover in such a limited amount of space. The Forsaken Fortress may have a clear path to take, but by exploring it for a bit, you can find a few rupees and even a piece of heart. On Windfall Island, you can seek out quests and unearth secrets simply by talking to people and investigating the nearby buildings. No one is asking you to do this. In fact, some would argue that taking your time to discover the world is causing your sister more grief in the long run as she sits in that cell. 
That's because this adventure wasn't always just about saving your sister. It's also about discovering the world, and in turn, discovering yourself. This is something that Link has wanted for a long time, if his response to the happenings on Outset Island are any indication. While Tetra falling into the woods and Errol being kidnapped are great reasons to desire leaving the island and getting out of your comfort zone, they aren't exactly the happiest of circumstances. No, our desire to get out there is driven by something deeper, something closely associated with human nature. Our innate curiosity. The Great Sea feeds on this inherent curiosity from the moment you step foot on Outset Island. When I first played this game, I was endlessly fascinated by the silhouetted islands out in the distance. I couldn't wait until the time came when I could finally explore those distant islands. I remember staring at those boats on the shores of Outset, wondering when I'd be able to cross the ocean too. What could those islands hold in store for me? The game almost never compromises on this feeling. Each island is silhouetted until you approach it, which gives you time to wonder about what it might be, and if it seems intriguing enough to stray off your set path for a bit and explore the unknown. Here's an example of how Wind Waker keeps me intrigued. Let's say you're on your way to the Forest Haven and you decide to stop at Bomb Island. From there, you should be able to see silhouettes of islands like Bird's Peak Rock, the Private Oasis, the Thorn Ferry Island, and the Cliff Plateau Isles. If you sail a bit further out, you could also possibly catch a glimpse of Ice Ring Isle as well. Each of the islands are visually distinct from one another, and from that, you can deduce that they will all likely feature different gameplay. Bird's Peak Rock involves using the unpronounceable Hioi pair to hit five switches. The private oasis's cabana can only be entered once you acquire the deed, and from there you'll have to navigate a maze in the property's basement. The Ice Ring Isle has you slipping and sliding across icy terrain in order to acquire the iron boots, which are necessary for accessing the Wind Temple. As you can see, each of them are accessible at different points in your adventure, and they are all vastly different from one another in looks and in gameplay. That's one of the most compelling things about the Great Sea. Its structure allows for its disconnected areas to have such strong identity, and foregoes the challenge of attempting to fit such areas into a seamless overworld like in previous Zelda games. These silhouettes in the ocean both convey and hide enough information from the player to keep them guessing about what might lie ahead, and which path they should take next. It allows their imaginations to run wild, and from there, curiosity is a given. But let's back up for a second. When giving the player too much freedom, you risk overwhelming them with possibilities. To give players a taste of what the Great Sea has to offer, the game first restricts you to traveling in a straight line on your sea chart. You'll be doing this between Windfall Island and Dragon Roost Island, and again as you sail toward the Forest Haven. You'll also find lookout platforms to loot and submarines to investigate. This gives you a feel for the flow of exploration in the Great Sea. Your first stop will likely be at Pawprint Isle, where a kind salvager will give you your very first treasure chart if you choose to speak with him. And while you can't nab everything in the secret cave just yet, you will be able to pick up a piece of heart as a reward for listening to your curiosity. This doesn't mean you can immediately and fully plunder each island you come across, though. On your way to the Forest Haven, the contents of each island will be off-limits, instead fleshing out the other things that appear in the Great Sea. Searching nearby submarine will grant you an empty bottle, and you can reap the rewards of some of your treasure charts here too. Essentially, this tutorial teaches you about the Great Sea in two parts. It first showcases island exploration with Pawprint Isle, before showcasing the other things you can find in lieu of not being able to access the islands yet. In traditional Zelda fashion, you'll have to come back later when you have the right item and you can put the pieces together. I mean, hmm, what do you think Bomb Island will require? That's a tricky one, huh? But in an ocean this vast, with 49 different quadrants to visit, it can be hard to commit all of this to memory. 
That's why this sea chart exists. With the help of the fishmen, we can add each individual island to our map as we come across them, with the small payment of bait, of course. They'll also give you various hints pertaining to the Great Sea, and how investigating points of interest just might benefit your main quest. Even with these tools at your disposal, the Great Sea will still employ a lot of memorization. So much so that it reaches beyond the scope of human short-term memory, which can at best remember 5-9 items at a time. I discussed this limitation when addressing the design of the Water Temple. With 9 paths to take and rooms further within each path, 3 water levels to consider, and the spatial awareness that comes with all this, you are bound to get tangled up eventually. The Great Sea presents a similar dilemma in an entirely different context. You're not cooped up in some dungeon, and as the game has made clear already, it's okay to put off the primary objective in exchange for some adventure. And the game is about to give you the perfect opportunity to do that in the most unsettling of circumstances. After clearing the Forbidden Woods, your next objective will be to visit Great Fish Isle and retrieve Nehru's Pearl from Jabun. However, upon arriving, you'll realize that it has been completely devastated by Ganondorf. For him to effortlessly tear it to pieces like this, he certainly hasn't lost his touch since the legend took place, but with such power, it made me wonder why he'd only attack now. What could he be plotting? Well, he's testing you. After brushing you aside at the Forsaken Fortress, he is making a conscious effort to impede your progress as he notices your strength growing. It's time to face the Endless Night. Ganondorf has inflicted a curse on the Great Sea, causing a period of indefinite darkness and thunderstorms. Most residents of populated islands remain inside, and the familiar sailing theme you've likely grown fond of by this point is replaced with a villainous take on the same theme, with Ganondorf's theme sneaking in there too. Despite how oppressive the atmosphere is during this phase of the game, this is a crucial turning point in the design of Wind Waker. For the first time, you can freely explore the entirety of the Great Sea. You obviously won't be able to do everything with your current item selection, but after acquiring bombs from the pirates, the only big obstacles from here will be the arrows, hookshot, power bracelets, and skull hammer, as the iron boots and mirror shield have limited use in the Great Sea. That might sound like a massive chunk of the game is still inaccessible, but there's still a lot you can do now that you aren't confined to a set path. To show you what I mean, I did the homework. Of the 49 quadrants in the Great Sea, there are only 5 squares in which you can do absolutely nothing during the Endless Night, and that's factoring in treasure chart rewards, lookout platforms, and submarines. If we're only talking about things you can do on the islands of each quadrant, then you'll still have access to the goodies on half of the islands. And even with that on the table, since you won't be able to explore every island you visit during the Endless Night, nothing's stopping you from marking them down in your sea chart and memorizing what they look like so that you can solve them later. This is the biggest opportunity to explore the Great Sea that you've been given thus far, and it exists against the backdrop of a dire circumstance. This is your moment to prove yourself. The moment to prove to Ganon that he doesn't own this ocean. You do. Like what happened with Outset Island. As Link, you are taking a tragic setting and turning it into a chance to make progress. Progress in your adventure, as a person, and for the world. The Endless Night comes at a perfect point in terms of difficulty progression too. At this point, you've cleared the Forsaken Fortress, Dragon Roost Cavern, and the Forbidden Woods. 
These three areas all teach you different skills, as well as develop the transferable skills for resourcefulness, solving puzzles, and fighting enemies. You've seen a plethora of different enemies that each have optimal ways of being defeated. You've had to micromanage different floors and rooms uniquely in all three scenarios. The Forsaken Fortress has indoor and outdoor sections with unorthodox ways of connecting its separate floors. Dragon Roost Cavern will only let you change floors after clearing challenges or crossing lava. And changing floors in the Forbidden Woods is contingent on its vertical rooms and Boko Baba Buds. But perhaps most important is that the items you obtain from each of these dungeons act as keys in the Great Sea. Solving puzzles in dungeons is always transferable to solving puzzles in the Great Sea. They're just set in different contexts. All that's left for you to do is get out there. Now I've talked at length about how exciting such a tragic part of this game can be, so instead of waffling on about it for any longer, why don't I give you an example? This will also give me a chance to explain a few more inner workings of the Great Sea and how they factor into quests that lead into more quests, kinda like Majora's Mask. Keep in mind, this is just a singular example from one of my many playthroughs. After being faced with the challenge of the Endless Night, the first thing I did was just set off for the island surrounding Greatfish that interested me. After sailing north for a bit, I stumbled upon the Northern Fairy Isle, which happened to be the only fairy isle that didn't have an obstacle to clear. It's as if they wanted you to discover this island right away, and in taking this detour before returning to Windfall Island, I managed to increase my wallet size from a measly 200 rupees to a thousand. This immediately opened up a lot of doors for making a profit, especially since silver rupees beforehand would simply max out your wallet. The copious amount of treasure charts that I'd previously been saving for later suddenly had more value to me. In light of this discovery, I set off for unknown parts of the ocean, immediately coming across the silhouette of a submarine off the coast of the island. Finally, I could use my new boomerang to stun these moblins and get revenge for all those times they'd mopped the floor with me. I pocketed the treasure chart and set sail. The treasure happened to be at the nearby Spectacle Island, which netted me 200 more rupees. Anyway, I stopped at Windfall and grabbed the bombs, which Tetra graciously let me borrow out of the unspoken kindness in her heart, but before leaving I figured I'd knock out a few goodies that I'd been curious about finding with my new items. After that, it's off to see what I can do with these bombs. My first stop was at Pawprint Isle from the tutorial phase of the Great Sea, as it had a few bombable areas with rupees and the like. But there's also another reason I wanted to revisit the place. The grappling hook isn't just useful for crossing pits or scaling walls. As the game progressed, I found that its primary use became stealing items from enemies. Your spoils bag lets you carry these items, as well as sell anything you don't need to Beetle for a quick buck. But it's best that you hang on to them. Characters on Windfall, Outset, and Dragon Roost will all have need for these items for one reason or another. By making a habit of stealing these things, you can speed up the process of clearing all of these quests and increasing your strength. And these items set up goals that stretch across the entire game. Joy Pendants in particular are required in order to beat the game. We'll delve more into this topic later. In the case of Pawprint Isle, I simply came here just to steal some green chew jelly to mix potions back on Windfall. A humble goal, but when you consider just how useful magic is in Wind Waker even this early on, I'm glad I sought after the jelly in hindsight. Like, the Deku Leaf is such an amazing item. It allows you to get basically anywhere, and it never stops being a useful tool for traversal and puzzle solving but it drains magic like nothing else, so it'd be best to prepare for any kind of scenario. You might think this is kind of an irrelevant tangent, but it actually plays into something else that Wind Waker is amazing at, encouraging micromanagement. We'll save that discussion for later too. For now, let's switch our focus back to discovery and exploration during the Endless Night. So we have our bombs now, right? 
Bombs are arguably the most useful key for the Great Sea series of locks, as they can open boarded up passages, destroy giant rocks, they can be ammunition for a cannon on the back of the King of Red Lions, allowing you to sink enemy ships, with some of them carrying heart pieces and the like, they can destroy lookout platform defenses from afar, and take down giant Octoroks with ease. I also got an upgraded bomb bag during the Endless Night from a fairy fountain, which gave me further breathing room for using my bombs at sea. As you can probably tell, bombs give you plenty of options when exploring the Great Sea, and it'd be a shame to simply pass this opportunity up, no matter how dour the ocean is right now. When all is said and done, you can max out your wallet, double your magic meter, and end up with a total of 11 hearts if you thoroughly scour the ocean and manage your resources accordingly. Not everyone is going to hit all that criteria, but it's exciting to know what's possible. And in order to accomplish all of this, all you really need is diligence and curiosity. When faced with such adversity, all I wanted to do was explore the ocean. And considering how much variety there is in what you can do out there, such enticing challenges that all require different skills to complete, getting the third pearl back and breaking the curse is a piece of cake. Speaking of which, Jabun is hiding in the back of Outset Island. Now would be a perfect time to show your grandmother how much you've grown. Unfortunately, she hasn't been the same since you left. She sits alone in her house, suffering from severe symptoms of empty nest syndrome. It seems as though nothing will wake her. Except for a fairy, and there happens to be a fairy fountain in the forest above Outset, that of which you can access thanks to your bombs. Waking your grandmother up will allow her to make you elixir soup. The best item in the game. Full health, full magic, doubled attack power until you take damage, and there's two helpings inside. Now that she's awake, she can watch you grow and support you from afar, and you can come visit her whenever you like. It's fulfilling to show her that her infinite kindness is appreciated, and that your goodbye wasn't forever. On the subject of growth, that's the best part about the Endless Night. This is the first time you've been given this kind of freedom, despite the circumstances. This is what Link has been longing for. All of this searching you're doing is out of a subconscious desire to grow and familiarize yourself with an unknown world. If you choose to do as much as you can, you'll have a much better grasp of the sea as it opens further. All of this against the backdrop of a challenge imposed on you by an all-powerful force. The Endless Night represents how good Wind Waker is at driving the player to explore. It is yet another example of carving a path out of a roadblock. In the end, I mean, you want to be ready the next time you see Errol, don't you? You still have to return her telescope, after all. To this day, it has become a personal challenge to grab as much as I can during the Endless Night, and I'm not alone on that. Here's a GameFAQs thread from 2009 in which users discuss their attempts at it. This transitions nicely into my next point. Wind Waker capitalized on an important aspect of the original Legend of Zelda. Sharing information. The original Zelda may seem cryptic or inaccessible nowadays, but it held a lot of power precisely because of how open-ended yet secretive it was. The game doesn't have any outward teaching tools, you had to discover the game on your own. This was common for games of its era. They could teach you through gameplay, they didn't need to tell you how to play. In Zelda's case, discovering how the game works was the game. Finding dungeons, bombing walls, burning bushes, all of this stuff was up to you to figure out as you worked your way toward Ganon. Due to the density of the overworld, how you have to figure out the proper application of each item and where to use said items, not everyone is going to be able to find every little secret in this game on their own. I find that experiences in life are more valuable when you have someone to share them with. And that is especially true for art. Socialization and discussion of art directly contributes to its longevity 
and impact. With so much to find in Zelda 1, and considering how huge it was upon release, it's inevitable that people would start sharing the secrets they'd discovered with each other. My second cousin grew up in the 80s, and I have a distinct memory of him watching me try to play the original Zelda in my grandpa's living room. I must have been about 7 years old at the time, with my gaming sensibilities stemming from games of the early to mid-2000s. I remember trying to navigate a maze of bushes, and he mentioned coming back with a candle and burning a particular bush to get into the 8th dungeon. He also showed me a bombable wall that revealed a secret cave with a heart container. After he'd shared what he learned with me, I began to look at the overworld in a new light. I managed to find the entrance to Death Mountain all on my own, thanks to the knowledge about bombable walls that he shared with me. At the same time, I was trying to beat Wind Waker. After the Endless Night, the game expands exponentially. The residents of Windfall come back outside and the village operates as normal, so plenty of previously impossible quests are now accessible. You'll begin to acquire items in rapid succession. The Skullhammer will let you smack buttons stationed across the Great Sea. The Hero's Bow will let you shoot things from afar, which means you can finally battle Cyclos and learn the Ballad of Gales from him. With this song, you can warp to designated spots around the Great Sea, bypassing some unnecessary sailing, and you can warp inside the Mother and Child Isles to acquire the Fire and Ice Arrows from the Fairy Queen. I always thought Link's reaction to her crush on him was... just... just precious. From there, it's the power bracelets, iron boots, mirror shield, hookshot... The game just keeps on opening up to you. What all of this is contingent on, with the exception of the dungeon items, is your own attentiveness, and how well you are able to put the pieces together. Even with this new set of tools, there are bound to be some missing parts from time to time. Incomplete quests that bridge into other quests, like how completing the deluxe Picto box will allow you to use it for more quests around Windfall, missing items from other parts of the Great Sea, what have you. Like, let's say you need to get into the Wind Temple, but you can't get past the strong gusts pushing you back. The mapfish nearby will tell you where to go to retrieve the item you need, but in order to get to that island, you'll need to know how to raise its temperature, and this is where you may find you'll need to start following the breadcrumb trail of the fishmen across the ocean. Although I've listed all the items you can obtain, it's not nearly as straightforward as I've made it seem. By nature, the Great Sea is non-linear. It wouldn't be designed the way it is if they wanted you to do things in a specific order, barring the main quest. As a result, some of the information given to you won't be relevant for a while, such as the clue about getting into Overlook Island. The hookshot is the last major item you obtain, so if you happen to stumble upon Overlook Island during the Endless Night, you'd have to commit that clue to memory for a long time. So what now? Well, when short-term memory fails us, note-taking can have our backs. I couldn't dig up the notebook I used back then as it was over a decade ago, but while trying to uncover every secret the Great Sea had to offer, I filled up pages and pages of my notebook jotting down clues and things I wanted to remember. Whether it was speculation over an island's purpose, a connecting thread in a side quest on Windfall, or the location of a specific cave I wanted to revisit later. Everything that I felt would be useful at some point in the game was in there. Where did I get this idea? By sharing my experience with a friend. I highly doubt he's watching this video, but I just want to thank a childhood friend of mine for inadvertently making me realize that I was playing my favorite game of all time. When I was about 8 or 9 years old, I was at his house playing some GameCube games and I noticed he had Wind Waker. After talking about it for a bit, we told each other where we were in the game progress-wise. From there, we ended up sharing some things that we learned. As it turns out, putting a non-linear sandbox for exploration in a video game means different players are going to be drawn to different things. Imagine that. He told me that the key to getting into Fire Mountain and Ice Ring Isle was shooting down Cyclos, who shows up at different parts of the map depending on the time of day. 
I'd run into him by accident before obtaining the hero's bow, and now that I knew how to beat him, I needed a plan of attack. My friend and I each drew crude replicas of the Great Sea on our own pieces of paper, and from there, he showed me the approximate locations of where he thought Cyclos' tornado would appear. After that, I told him about some secrets I'd found by sailing around, like the cave on Bomb Island, an ominous submarine I found near Seven Star Isles. I even told him about the Triforce charts I had, which is where he happened to be in the game. He was surprised by how early I found them, because he was having a hard time tracking them all down, even with the help of Tingle's incredible chart. So we exchanged as many secrets as we could before I had to go home. When I turned the game on later that night, I referred to my hand-drawn sea chart, and sure enough, there he was. Cyclos in all of his glory. Sharing discoveries with friends has always been a part of what makes video games so special. It wasn't exclusively tied to the original Legend of Zelda. A different friend of mine helped me unlock Dark Garden in Sonic Adventure 2 because I was too dumb to figure it out myself. And lest we forget all of the widespread rumors like Sonic and Melee or Luigi and Mario 64. The Zelda series itself had a handful of moments that were popularized by word of mouth like the fifth bottle glitch in Ocarina of Time, or doing dungeons out of order in Link to the Past. But Wind Waker was different. Wind Waker offered a stage for the sort of discussion that hadn't been seen since the 80s. This is what I would call an adventure. It was an unparalleled sandbox that brought me tremendous amounts of joy. With every secret I discovered, every heart piece I'd collect, every purchase I'd make, every person I'd help, I could feel myself getting stronger. I felt more confident in tackling those combat gauntlets I'd find in caves across the ocean. I could take on whatever the next dungeon would throw at me. All because I had this inherent desire in me to make the world my own. With this confidence in my knowledge of the ocean came the final step, mastering it. Memorizing the ocean will make certain quests much more manageable, even if it'll take a lot in order to get to that point. But the payoff will be worth it. Example: The Korok Sapling Quest. At some point, you'll no doubt take notice of the Koroks scattered across the Great Sea. These guys were scattered in an attempt to spread the Great Deku Tree's forest across the ocean, but the trees they planted have since withered. To help them, we need water from the Forest Haven. We can use it as many times as we like, but after 20 minutes, it turns into regular water and it won't have any effect on the trees. You can have the Deku Tree mark the locations of the trees on your map, but it's up to you to plan out the most efficient route. If you've gotten used to using the Ballad of Gales to save time, you can probably stitch islands together in your route and figure out what saves the most time. It can get dicey, but with enough planning, you should be able to nab the heart piece. This is just one example, and it's a completely optional task. There's also the Goron trading quest, in which you have to memorize where each Goron resides and which statues they wish to trade for. And let's not forget the countless uses your spoils bag can have. We've touched upon this before, but the items in your spoils bag will continue to lead to opportunities across the Great Sea, even if you don't realize it right away. People across the ocean will be on the lookout for these items for one reason or another. If you recall, Orca has a Knight's Crest sitting in his room, and he'll teach you the Hurricane Spin if you manage to wrangle up ten of them. You can net yourself an easy blue potion for just four Boko Baba seeds if you know where the store is. Rito girls are apparently infatuated with golden feathers, so I'm sure someone would be grateful to have them. Oh, and don't forget, if you ever need potions, the potion shop could always use some spare chew jelly. Actually, speaking of which, I don't think I've ever been able to locate every single blue choo-choo in this game to this day, which is kind of a testament to how much you're able to do in the Great Sea. Like I've alluded to previously, one of these types of spoils is actually required in order to beat the game. After getting the killer bees to settle down, they'll mention that Mrs. Marie loves jewelry. 
she's collecting joy pendants, and if you manage to find 20 of them, she'll give you the cabana deed, which will allow you to enter the basement of the cabana on the private oasis and obtain a required item. For balance's sake, joy pendants are the most common spoils in the game, even appearing in certain treasure chests across the various dungeons. But by giving her 40 of these things instead of just settling for the deed, you'll be granted the Hero's Charm, which allows you to see enemy health bars. This might seem goofy, but it can help you prioritize targets in the game's more aggressive combat sections, that of which become plentiful as the Great Sea really expands. These are a few examples of activities in this game that take a while to complete, but they shed light on how systematically driven Wind Waker can be. The Great Sea isn't just made up of uncharted islands and endless discovery, it eventually reveals itself to be a series of moving parts. Everything that you do or discover contributes to your main quest in some way, taking inspiration from Eiji Aonuma's previous Zelda game, Majora's Mask. Every reward in the Great Sea connects to another in some way, and in order to figure out how, we need to examine a reward's utility and discoverability. Let's take rupees for example. They can buy you lots of things. Bait for filling out your sea chart, heoid pairs, potions, ammunition, entrance to minigames, auction items, even heart pieces and treasure charts at times. You're actually required to save up your rupees by the end of the game, as Tingle will need you to decipher a handful of charts for 398 rupees each. That adds up, but if you're smart with your money, you should be able to afford it in the end. How do you gain rupees? By completing minor side quests, finding them in treasure chests, defeating enemies, breaking pots, a Zelda classic, and salvaging them from the ocean with the help of a corresponding treasure chart. There is our first connection. Independent scientific research has proven that there is a direct link between seeking out treasure charts and being filthy rich. You can find them by clearing side quests and unearthing them in chests across the dungeons and islands, but they aren't going to be as easy as finding rupees thanks to how much you can gain access to with them. Treasure charts can reward you with more rupees than you'll know what to do with. Almost every quadrant in the Great Sea has a corresponding reward to reap from a treasure chart, and alongside massive rupee rewards, you can also find heart pieces and unique charts that reveal locations of big octos, great fairies, lookout platforms, secret caves, and submarines. There are even charts that reveal how many heart pieces are on each island, and how many heart pieces can be found through treasure charts on each island. Speaking of which, Heart pieces are classic rewards that give you instant gratification and a feeling of immediate growth, and that's exactly why they're the most difficult to obtain. You can find them in the same manner as treasure charts, but they don't appear in dungeons at all, with the exception of that first heart piece you can find in the Forsaken Fortress. In order to experience that gratification, you'll have to go out of your way to look for them. All three of these rewards link up with one another in some way, and they drive exploration if you weren't already experiencing that desire organically. I'll give you a long-winded example of how all of this happens. Let's say you decide to stop at 4 Eye Reef after sailing around the vicinity of the Forsaken Fortress. Sheer curiosity has brought you out here, and after revisiting the fortress a second time, cannons have appeared at the reef. So you take them out one by one and fly over to the chest that appears. You open the treasure chart and save it for later. In order to get into the Earth Temple, you need to stop at Dragon Roost Island first. At this point, you have the doubled magic meter, so you decide to stop at the nearby flight control platform and attempt the minigame for a heart piece. Just by visiting that island, you'll also notice a submarine that contains that lookout platform chart and the reward for your previous treasure chart lying in wait. This will grant you the island hearts chart. Let's say after looking at this thing, you are inspired to check out Seven Star Isles, and you also notice from the looks of your platform chart that there's a tower waiting to be investigated. 
So you nab the heart piece after defeating the nearby Big Octo, steal the treasure chart from the Wizrobes on the nearby lookout platform, and head to Shark Island, where the reward from that treasure chart can be found, 200 rupees. Shark Island will also spawn a chest containing 200 rupees if you use all of your items fast enough, and that inspires you to head back down to Windfall and participate in the auction. You strategically mash the A button, claim your reward, and head out. At Windfall, you notice that new quests have opened up to you, so you earn a few heart pieces while you're there, and now you finally feel ready to face the Earth Temple. Now, this is a completely hypothetical situation that I've come up with. Where you choose to go after finding that Island Hearts chart, or if you even let yourself be influenced by it, is completely up to you. The point is, all of the rewards you net for exploring connect to one another in an engaging, non-linear cycle. A rupee reward could lead to the purchase of a treasure chart from Rockspire Island, which takes you to another heart piece and shifts your priorities to rupees as you try to make up for your lost savings, thus making you seek out more treasure charts. There are seemingly infinite paths to take when playing Wind Waker, even if you always wind up progressing through the game in the same manner each time. The Great Sea is a boundless, methodical ocean that is yours to map out. You are free to create your own path. When all of this comes together, it still won't mean you've mastered Wind Waker's gameplay loop, nor does it mean you've seen all there is to see. The final challenge, in which your resourcefulness will be tested and your collection of the three main rewards will be put to use, lies in the most contentious part of the game. It's time for me to make a case for the Triforce chart quest. By the time you reach this point, you'll have every major item. The only keys that you may be lacking will be for optional rewards, like a missing treasure chart that leads to a heart piece you have yet to collect, for example. Right now, all that's left for you to do is reassemble the Triforce of Courage. With the use of Tingle's incredible chart, you will have the general locations of each chart, and you can grab them in any order you like. Some of these charts can be found pretty early on as I've alluded to previously, and the Fishmen can sometimes hint at their whereabouts. Whether that means finding a way into the private cabana, discovering one in a chest after bombing your way into an island of steel, or stumbling upon a chart after finding a cave on an island in the middle of nowhere. These charts can either be one of many discoveries you make in the Great Sea, or some of the most challenging puzzles to crack. Either way, you'll need all eight shards in the end. To make things just a little trickier, you won't be able to use each chart to fish up a shard until Tingle deciphers them. It costs 398 rupees to decipher a single chart, meaning that you'll be spending a staggering total of 3,184 rupees. Essentially, this roadblock is a test of how much money you've been able to make simply from exploring the Great Sea and fishing up rupees with treasure charts, and I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. There are plenty of other uses for rupees as we've discussed, so prioritizing what you need to use them for is simply an extension of something that Zelda has been doing for a long time. And it's one of the many things Wind Waker has you micromanaging. On top of that, no one's really forcing you to explore the Great Sea. The game may give you great emotional or mechanical reasons to do so, but like Majora's Mask, you could disregard the vast majority of content the game has to offer and railroad yourself to the end. However, just like that game, you'd be doing yourself a major disservice, and it would only set you up for a much more challenging endgame. As such, the Triforce chart quest acts as a final exam of sorts. It deliberately tests you on your knowledge of the Great Sea and your ability to find stuff within its 49 squares. When it comes to finding the charts themselves, it usually boils down to stumbling upon the island they reside at or finding the right item that'll let you in. Like I've said, there's a good chance that you could accidentally stumble upon some of them as you explore on your own terms, but there are two notable exceptions to this. 
let's start by discussing the Savage Labyrinth. Deciphering the Triforce charts gives immediate purpose to rupees and treasure charts, two of our three big rewards. But what about heart pieces? Yes, having enough heart containers to face the final boss is going to make a difference, as always, but as it turns out, there is a quest in this game that was implemented in order to test you on your raw strength and resilience. The Savage Labyrinth is a massive 50-floor enemy gauntlet made up of bad guys from across the entire game. They usually appear in sizable chunks, so there's plenty of fighting, plenty of item strategy, plenty of target prioritization, and plenty of dodging to be done here. But naturally, there's plenty of variety down here too. Although you only have to clear 30 floors to nab the Triforce chart, you can continue to the bottom to net yourself more rupees for deciphering said chart, and a piece of heart. If we're going to talk about why I think the Savage Labyrinth is so fun, now would probably be a good time to bring up Wind Waker's combat as a whole. To put it simply, it's fantastic. The developers took the groundwork laid out by the Nintendo 64 Zeldas and thoroughly refined it. It is incredibly fluid and responsive. Varying my sword slashes has never felt this good. It also has a new trick up its sleeve. The parry. When locked onto an enemy, you wait for the Q and press the A button to dodge and strike. Some might say that the parry is overpowered, and when facing larger enemies one-on-one, -on -one, it can be. But when other enemies are attempting to swarm you, a parry is not very easy to pull off, nor is it the best option. On top of that, it takes a while to kill enemies with the parry alone, so it eventually becomes yet another tool in your kit. For example, it is very useful for taking out Darknut armor and circumventing the defensive measures enemies might use, but it isn't the only thing you should be doing. Spin attacks are great for crowd control, the boomerang hits stun enemies, the ice arrows can freeze them, the skull hammer can flatten them. Item strategy is key in Wind Waker, and it can be fun to experiment wherever necessary. For example, this is a floor master. These things can disrupt your progress in a dungeon by taking you to another room, and it's pretty easy for them to grab a hold of you. I've learned an efficient way of dealing with them though. Shoot an ice arrow at one of them, and then smash them with the skull hammer. It will guarantee their death each and every time. Anyway, you get the picture. Combat in Wind Waker is very fun, but it isn't always easy. Especially as they introduce more powerful enemies and start throwing them at you in larger quantities. This is where you'll begin to feel the weight of all that effort you put in looking for heart pieces, and it finally comes to a head in the Savage Labyrinth. It is an endurance run, and I love it. Not only is it a test of your practical abilities and critical thinking, but its difficulty is directly reflected in how much of the ocean you've already made yours. The Triforce chart quest, in many respects, is a test of practical mastery of the game's moving parts. But let's rewind for a second. I established one of the Great Sea's prime motivating factors as innate human curiosity and wonder, and Wind Waker does everything it can to drive that wonder. As such, it doesn't come as a surprise to me, in hindsight, that the game would have a culmination of that. This particular part of the Triforce chart quest encompasses everything the Great Sea stands for. Throughout the game, you may have heard rumors about some kind of ghost ship. The pictographer Lenzo has a pictograph of it in his gallery. In fact, he has pictographs of quite a few locations around the Great Sea to get your imagination going. Which, as I've repeatedly mentioned, is something that I really love about this game. He even alludes to meeting a beautiful young lass many years ago on Outset Island. Although she probably isn't as young as... she used to be. Grandpa? When you examine the ghost ship, he'll mention that he found the ship on a whim after being shipwrecked, and he heard rumors that the person who mapped out its movements died a mysterious death. 
Now, you can actually come across the ship at night in the same manner as Lenzo if you happen to be in the right place at the right time. And let me tell you, that is a magical experience. The chances of this happening are very slim, as the ship only sails near a specific island depending on the appearance of the moon. So if it's a full moon, it'll be in one place, and if it's the first quarter, it'll be in another. The modern day equivalent to seeing this thing out of nowhere would be like seeing a dragon for the first time in Breath of the Wild. What in God's sweet name is that? Guys? If you try to sail into it, you'll pass right through it. It doesn't become apparent that entering the ghost ship is required until you obtain the incredible chart, and that's where you'll have to start scouring the Great Sea for the chart that'll grant you access. To my knowledge, the only fishman that offers a hint towards location is right in front of the location. So, all you'll ever know until then is that it exists. This ends up being the ultimate test of your wisdom of the Great Sea. Finding it means searching every single quadrant until you finally come across it. As it turns out, it happens to be hiding within a maze on Diamond Step Island, and finding it feels super rewarding. Now to track the ghost ship down. The chart will show you which island it will appear at in accordance with each phase of the moon. All that's left to do now is pay attention to the moon and head over to the corresponding island. While I may have made the process of sailing into the ghost ship seem pretty straightforward, it can actually get pretty complicated. For starters, the landforms are deliberately obscure and unnamed, so you'll have to make sure that you can find them on your sea chart. You have been filling out your sea chart, right? As you could probably tell, the game is testing you. They aren't going to hand you this ghost ship on a silver platter. You're going to have to know where it's going to be, and when it's going to be there from your time exploring the Great Sea. It is the perfect test. Even if you know where it's going to end up, you'll still have to sail around and look for the ship before dawn arrives. As such, it might be best to plan a raid. Know which phase of the moon is coming next, and then play the Song of Passing at the island it'll show up at next. Eventually, you'll come across it in all of its spooky glory, and you'll be able to sail in there to earn yourself the Triforce chart. This is not only a uniquely atmospheric part of the game, but it represents everything that I love about the Great Sea. The genuine wonder that comes with searching for stuff, and accumulating knowledge and experience in such a magnificent, uncharted ocean. By the time you finally assemble the Triforce of Courage, it stands as a symbol of your mastery over the Great Sea. And all of this became a reality because I had the drive and the courage to forge my own path. It didn't matter where I was going or where I'd end up, because I knew the wind would always guide me to my destination. That destination? Adventure. The Great Sea is an astounding setting for a video game in a mechanical sense, and a metaphorical one. I grew up here, and I'm really glad I did. Since the Great Sea is so important to me, and precisely because I spent so much of my time finding things in it, I have quite a few stories to tell, both from playing the game itself, and from the copious amount of media surrounding it. Here are some of my stories from my childhood adventures and endless research. When I first arrived on Great Fish Isle, I couldn't help but imagine what it used to be like. What happened here was absolutely tragic. You can see remains of pathways and buildings completely torn to shreds if you look around. Maybe it used to be a peaceful fishing village or something. It wouldn't be until years later, when I was flipping through my Hyrule Historia book, that I'd notice a few pieces of concept art depicting an underwater area. First, there was a scene in which Link would plunge underwater and meet Jabun. Perhaps he took refuge from Ganondorf underwater, and in order to meet him, you need to find an item somewhere in the Great Sea. This theory actually holds some weight, 
Hidden in the game's files is a strange, unused item that spells out water boots in Japanese hiragana characters. As you might know, it is normally impossible to see what lies beneath the ocean unless the King of Red Lions takes us there, and the water in Wind Waker is opaque, so this item might have been used for a scrap dungeon involving Jibun. Also, there's some concept art for an underwater level that you can travel to via a giant fishing hook. So even if the water boots weren't going to be implemented, there's evidence that they had to scrap a dungeon on ideas pertaining to Jibun's existence. Although, as a trade-off, we did get the Endless Night, which Wind Waker benefited greatly from. So while the mystery of Greatfish Isle may never truly be solved, what remains of it stands as a testament to the many mysteries of the Great Sea. These two islands are the locations of the power bracelets and iron boots, which are required to enter and solve the Earth and Wind temples respectively. In the final game, they may just be yet another mystery to solve in the grand scheme of things, but they might have been something more once upon a time. Again, while flipping through my Hyrule Historia book around the same time, I saw concept art for a place called Stovepipe Island, which features a village built on an active volcano. Upon seeing this, I immediately deduced that this would have been what Fire Mountain eventually became. It's been known for a long time that two dungeons were cut from Wind Waker as they fell behind schedule, which brings Fire Mountain's true purpose into question. But if we are to believe that Nehru's Pearl was once accompanied by a dungeon, then where does that leave Ice Ring Isle? Well, there isn't any evidence from the game's files or supplementary material of what the island might have featured, so perhaps the game's structure was drastically altered after these dungeons were scrapped to make Fire Mountain and Ice Ring Isle feel more like sibling islands. Or heck, maybe the ghost ship was once a full dungeon. We'll probably never know, but that won't stop me from imagining what these islands might have looked like in another universe. Ocarina of Time's playground of mechanics in the 3D space opened Pandora's box for new ways to play the game. And in the years since its release, this only rings truer. In Wind Waker, there are still new ways of solving problems that you can discover for yourself. Here are a few examples of things that I learned and picked up on growing up. When I first arrived on Dragon Roost Island as a kid, I saw a trail of bombs leading to a rock with a treasure chest on top. What they want you to do is shoot an arrow at the trail of bombs, but because I didn't know there was a bow in the game at the time, I had to get crafty. Here is a reenactment of what I did, and I'll warn you, it may not be for the faint of heart. After a seagull gulps down the Hioi pear, I do this. What are you looking at? It worked! Speaking of which, this is Spectacle Island, which features a minigame in which you shoot barrels with a cannon. Salvatore mentions, in accordance with the atmosphere that he's established for the minigame, that you're shooting down enemy pirate ships. But what if we used a real ship? If you place the King of Red Lions just far enough away from the island, you should be able to make it to shore without drowning, and he should be in range of the cannon. Once you find the right angle, fire away. Yep, you can do this forever. Pocket that heart piece and treasure chart, and then move on. Now in truth, I didn't actually figure this one out on my own. I have a very obscure YouTube channel from my childhood to thank for this one. QWERTY the Zippet was once a channel where two kids uploaded videos of themselves messing around in Wind Waker, among other things. Now it solely exists as an archive of their activity back then. I remember being utterly fascinated by some of the things you could do with action replay and whatnot, but when they uploaded a video of them doing something that I could actually replicate, I was very happy. If by some miracle one of those kids happens to be watching this now as an adult, I just want to say that Kid Me is very grateful for the good times he had with these videos. 
Hilariously, this was actually patched out in Wind Waker HD, which means that someone at Nintendo probably saw this video from 2009 made by a pair of children pointing a camera at their TV. Or not, but I can dream. Speaking of YouTube videos, I fostered my love for Wind Waker by watching videos about it, specifically the Let's Play series by Chugga Conroy. I started watching him a few months prior to his Wind Waker playthrough and jumped in with Super Mario Sunshine. Keep in mind, this was when the YouTube Partner Program was in its infancy. When I saw what he was doing, I realized that I could share my love of games in a revolutionary way, and potentially even make a career out of it. It's been almost 12 years, and I haven't given up on that. So thanks, Emil. For everything. My fascination with unused assets and test levels, the goofy differences in the original Japanese version of Wind Waker, I could go on for hours about my childhood infatuation with every little detail surrounding this game, and you know what, I know some of you would be totally fine with that. But there's another reason I brought these stories up. A lot of this was driven by childhood wonder, and that's what a lot of the Great Sea is built upon. That's not to say that your imagination or innate curiosity leaves you as you get older. If it did, this game wouldn't exist, nor would most games that evoke a similar feeling but I am over a decade older than I was when I finished Wind Waker for the first time. I've memorized its map layout and all of its secrets since then. With that knowledge and experience sticking with me, the wonder I once held onto has diminished. And as a result, my perception of this game has been impacted. Let's rewind to the beginning of the game on Outset Island. This carefree stage of the game is suddenly undercut by a sobering reality after Errol is kidnapped. Her melody is removed from the music of Outset, and you quickly realize that things will never be the same. Now let's fast forward to the first time you revisit the island during the Endless Night. Monsters have overrun the island, Grandma's house is accompanied by a sad tune, and the pig you got for your neighbor is all grown up. This island doesn't hold the same magic that it once did, due in part to my ever-growing experience with the ocean beyond, but also due to how the passage of time can affect things we once held dear. One of the toughest things about nostalgia is looking past it. Nostalgia can create an opaque cloud of perfection over something that you associate with fond childhood memories, and it can take a lot of courage to see through those clouds. But in doing so, you just might learn a thing or two moving forward. Ocarina of Time aimed to teach us this, and Wind Waker inadvertently did the same. For me at least, because I don't think it's perfect. It's been said that creativity is the art of hiding your influences. Rather than trying to emulate the things I love, I've made it my goal to fill gaps and hit notes that I felt were never hit to begin with. And I also make an effort to iterate or improve upon the things that I felt my influences got wrong. As the saying goes, those who cannot learn from history are doomed to repeat it. What I'm about to discuss are problematic things about Wind Waker that I've noticed over time. Things that I wish were different for one reason or another. Rest assured, I didn't waffle on about Wind Waker for this long simply to mask my true feelings. I love this game just as much as I want it to be better. It's just taken me a long time to notice its missteps. Let's start by addressing difficulty, an element most blatantly on display in this game's dungeons. Now the dungeons in Wind Waker never even come close to being bad. I don't want to give off that impression. But it's here where I think it is easiest to lobby criticism against Wind Waker's difficulty. To balance out the copious amount of side quests in Majora's Mask and the notion of simply ignoring them, the team designed some of the most crushing and puzzling dungeons in Zelda history. To this day, I am confident in saying Majora's Mask's dungeons 
still hold those distinctions. They were deliberately designed this way, as their brutal challenge would subconsciously reinforce the idea of acquiring tangible growth. Like, oh, this dungeon is hard, so I should prepare more before I attempt to beat it. This notion will drive players to find more heart pieces and masks, which in turn enables them to discover more about how the game works. And because a lot of the quests in that game will eventually open up other quests, it becomes an endless feedback loop that will inevitably prepare you for a lot more than just dungeons. Of course, there's also the possibility that the overwhelming difficulty and lack of accessibility at play in Majora's Mask could drive players away, as it almost did me. That's why I can understand the decision to make the dungeons in Wind Waker substantially easier. But this presents a reverse dilemma. When the dungeons can be arguably much easier than certain challenges across the Great Sea and during the Triforce chart quest, there's much less of a reason to feel you need to prepare for said dungeons. In Wind Waker's case, preparing for dungeons means exploring the Great Sea, finding caves, solving side quests, all that jazz. If there's less of a reason to do so, that could inadvertently cause players to blitz through the game in a linear fashion and miss a lot of what makes it so special. And in doing so, it sets them up for a startling endgame. I think this is where a lot of the distaste for the Triforce chart quest comes from. If you haven't spent the majority of your time exploring the Great Sea, it'll feel like nothing but padding, and you might feel a bit lost. So in summary, the game does a great job conveying the wonders of the Great Sea to you, but it doesn't always balance that out with a challenging main quest, and this is primarily noticeable in dungeons. To elaborate on how I feel about these dungeons, let's take a look at how I would rank them from least compelling to most compelling. That means we're starting with the game's first dungeon, Dragonroost Cavern. Most of it is spent progressing linearly from room to room and learning about concepts. Stuff like using a Bokoblin staff to light torches, usage of bombs, and creating platforms across lava. This is what most of the dungeon focuses on, and while there are occasional creative uses of these concepts like throwing a lit staff across a chasm to burn down a barrier, or attempting to make a platform on a geyser while this little scumbag slithers around, the major issue is that the layout of this dungeon itself is incredibly straightforward. Until you make it to the peak of Dragonroost and retrieve the grappling hook, you'll essentially be walking in a straight line as you solve each room. At one point, you'll actually pass by the boss door in order to reach the summit. Once you have the grappling hook, it's just a matter of visiting areas in which you can use it. You can branch off a little bit to grab a joy pendant or a treasure chart, but that's about it. I suppose it's good at establishing how dungeons function, but rarely does it feel genuinely puzzling. The Tower of the Gods is similarly straightforward, although it does give you some freedom to figure things out at first. To gain access to the higher level, you'll need to figure out how to bring these pillars out of the rooms they reside in. Usually this means moving blocks around in accordance with the rising water level and hopping across, or in one case, killing some choo-choos. After that though, the dungeon is painfully linear. You just progress from room to room carrying statues or using the command melody whenever necessary to solve increasingly more difficult puzzles and before you can finally reach the top. Its linearity is so detrimental to the dungeon that going back to the first floor to retrieve a treasure chart with my new bow ends up being too much of a hassle for me. I always just re-enter the dungeon afterwards. Certain rooms involving the hero's bow and some platforming ended up being the highlight for me, which kind of has nothing to do with the dungeon's thematic throughline, but I suppose it isn't completely void of challenge. Some of these statue puzzles, whether they involve the command melody or not, can be tricky to figure out. Regardless of whether or not a dungeon is good, linearity is a bit of a common problem with the layout of these things. You'll hardly find yourself holding onto more than one key at a time, and if you're in a room where you face an immovable obstacle, there's usually a door nearby that takes you to the correct path, continuing the cycle of straightforwardness. Let's say, for example, you're in the Forbidden Woods, and you see that tree hanging from the ceiling. You can't cut it down right now, and the door nearby is locked, so there's really only one correct path. 
you grab the key and there's only one place you can use it. From there you get the boomerang and the dungeon has basically finished itself by that point. All you have to do is take out the remaining rooms with your new item and kill the boss. To be fair to the Forbidden Woods, it can be pretty fun to explore and solve. They make great use of the Deku Leaf and Boomerang here, which are already items I love. One of the first rooms you enter is a giant vertical area that you ascend to find goodies, which in turn foreshadows the vertical room in which you cut down the tree. There's also a really enjoyable motif involving wilting nuts and wind-powered platforms. You might need to carry the nuts across these platforms, use the Deku Leaf to push them to where they need to go, or maybe you'll need to take them across even more dangerous terrain. Either way, this knowledge ends up being applicable to an optional room involving a moving platform, a plant-covered treasure chart, and a convenient hole for a bomb. The Earth Temple is also composed of great puzzles. Fantastic puzzles, even. All involving the Mirror Shield, the Command Melody, and Medley's Harp. They incrementally build on concepts involving shining lights on things, like choo-choos that turn to stone, which you can subsequently place on switches, or murder. There are chests, designated walls, and paralyzing fog, until it all comes to a head in this room. You have to move mirrors and link up your mirror shield with Mendley's harp and other light beams. It's quite an intricate puzzle, and it's super satisfying to solve. Even if it takes a really long time. But as for the layout in the Earth Temple? Pretty dang simple. As showcased with the Forbidden Woods in the Earth Temple, Wind Waker excels in creating compelling dungeon rooms. What it isn't so great at is finding creative and perplexing ways to connect them. For comparison, Dodongo's Cavern wasn't clear about where it wanted you to go, but you could eventually connect the dots by exploring each side of the dungeon. The Fire Temple was continuously unclear, and it connected its rooms with this threatening, boulder-infested maze that could eventually be scaled as you found your way through. And do we really need to mention the layout of the Water Temple again? That may have been an extreme example, but Wind Waker almost never varies its dungeon layouts in a similar manner. The dungeon that comes closest to doing this is the Wind Temple, although it still suffers from the same problems that the rest of the dungeons face. The reason it ends up being even remotely confusing is its central hub of doors. They all lead to different rooms on different floors, and it ends up making the Wind Temple the most fun to figure out, especially as you have to search for the item that will save Makar, and search for the big key afterwards. On top of that, its puzzles are pretty great too. Iron Boots and Deku Leaf, Iron Boots and Hookshot, Hookshot and Deku Leaf, using Makar to create a path, it also features the best dungeon boss and boss music in the entire game. Previous dungeon bosses had little to offer. Their weaknesses were often blatant, and usually required nothing more than usage of the item you obtained in the dungeon, and a few swift sword strikes. They honestly might be some of the most pitiful dungeon bosses in Zelda thus far, which is why it always comes as a surprise to me just how much fun Mulgara is to fight. Instead of something like aiming at Valu's tail and swinging a few times to expose Goma's weak point, you have to always be actively searching for an optimal position to fire your hookshot in the fight with Mulgara, because the sand beneath your feet is constantly shifting, and tiny little sandworms will launch themselves at you. Once you manage to actually latch onto Mulgara's tongue, you'll need to do as much damage as possible without slipping into the depths of the sand and being scooped up. It is an excellent fight, despite how simple I'm making it seem. And the music slaps, but I'm sure you knew that already. If every boss in Wind Waker were designed to be as engaging as Mulgara, perhaps I'd be singing a different tune about your endless searching being irrelevant to the dungeons. So what do I mean by that? Well, first of all, it's not like enemies won't try to put you in the dirt. Once you reach the Earth and Wind Temple, encounters can get pretty difficult. 
Stalfoses, for example, will be unfazed by your attacks until you deal enough damage to separate the parts of their bodies, in which case you'll have to go bananas on their head as fast as possible while avoiding the other parts of the body. It's a great enemy. However, if you have been exploring the Great Sea, especially to the extent that I've encouraged, Link will essentially feel invincible in these fights. Sure, the most damaging hits will eventually add up, but since it's possible to collect up to 17 hearts before the Earth Temple, you can essentially turn Link into some kind of transcendental being that was placed in this world to kill all who oppose him. The Savage Labyrinth is still pretty challenging, even if you have every single heart piece that is possible to obtain up to that point, but otherwise you can make Link untouchable, especially if you complete Zunari's quest and obtain the magic armor. I suppose you could say that having this feeling is like a reward in and of itself though, kind of like an adrenaline rush akin to obtaining the Fierce Deity's Mask. As for the difficulty of the dungeons themselves, perhaps you could argue that their consistent low levels of challenge were intended as an introduction to the mechanics of Zelda as a whole, and that'd be fine. After all, that's kind of what they were going for, and I believe they succeeded in some regard. If you've never played a Zelda game before, you likely won't even notice their low level of difficulty. In fact, you just might find them challenging. But when you consider how Ocarina of Time was a starting point for a lot of people too, and how tricky its dungeons were from the start with complicated layouts and unorthodox setups for puzzle solving, especially as the game progressed, it became harder for me to advocate for the dungeons of Wind Waker in the greater context of the series. But hey, the dungeons aren't the only part of this game with critical flaws. Even the Great Sea is guilty in a few areas. Yes, as much as it pains me to say it, this ocean isn't always smooth sailing. So. Discoveries in Wind Waker are categorical in nature. As in, there are a finite amount of types of discoveries to make. When you discover an island, sometimes their innate characteristics will be enough to drive an excellent puzzle. And for the most part, that's exactly how it goes. We've talked about this fantastic loop already, but for the sake of argument, let's look at an example again. Needle Rock Isle has a very peculiar design, and your only clue is that you can spot birds nested atop the spire in the center of the island's moat. By flying up there with a Hioi pair, you'll discover a switch, which will give you access to a piece of heart. It's just as much fun to find this island as it is to solve. If the island itself doesn't immediately deliver compelling gameplay, one of the caves hidden on the island will. Caves can hold unique challenges, like this cave in Bomb Island that has you using magtails as rocks to hold switches down, or any of the caves that I've already showcased. Other times they'll hold a static type of cave like a combat grotto, a series of combat challenges which are common between caves that hold Triforce charts, or just a cave with a chest in it. These types of discoveries are the best that Wind Waker has to offer, and they coexist with the lookout platforms, submarines, big octos, and treasure charts. For the majority of the game, this is what makes the Great Sea emphatically fun to pick clean. But as you pick the ocean clean and complete your sea chart, you'll begin to fall into a routine. Things that once excited me like a distant submarine or a hidden cave on a remote island eventually become just another thing to cross off the checklist. This feeling is amplified if you decide to clean up the rest of the goodies you're missing in the ocean. You'll begin to notice things that just don't carry a feeling of excitement. Instead, they carry an atmosphere of annoyance. Let's talk about how the Great Sea is divided. Although this may not seem detrimental to you as you play through the game, once you realize how they've made use of the spaces in the overworld, you might get a little frustrated. Let's start with the Triangle Islands. They're only used for placing the pearls, and then they're done for. So that's three squares down. Next, let's take the Fairy Islands. Although it is quite exciting to discover potential upgrades to your arsenal in the ocean, they do not need to take up isolated spaces on your sea chart. Remember how there was a fairy fountain hiding in the forest above Outset? Or how a fairy could double your magic meter if you saved her from a big octo? Why didn't they do something similar with the other fairies? 
hiding them amidst populated islands, or creating new islands and hiding them as rewards for clearing puzzles, would have been absolutely phenomenal. As it stands, the fairy islands are wasteful, so that's 8 squares of dead space total so far. Now let's talk about the worst islands in the game, the eye reefs. They all play out the exact same way, blow up the cannons, slowly climb on top of the reef, and fly over to your reward. On top of that, there's six of them, with two of them being right next to each other. These are horrible islands as far as I'm concerned, and exist to fill space, bringing us to 14 dead squares. Finally, let's talk about the islands that solely exist for the main quest, and are otherwise useless to you. This includes the Forsaken Fortress, the Tower of the Gods, Headstone Island, Gale Isle, Fire Mountain, and Ice Ring Isle. Aside from the heart piece on top of Headstone Island or the treasure chart on Ice Ring Isle, once you grab the treasure necessary for completing the game or otherwise finish off the island at hand, you'll never need to revisit them, aside from picking up a treasure chart reward or maybe clearing a nearby lookout platform, which happens a lot in this game. That brings us to a total of 20 squares, which accounts for 40% of the Great Sea. That is a massive portion of space that could have been utilized better. If the progress-related islands had islanders stationed there as part of a side quest, kind of like the Koroks, or optional caves and rewards to be unearthed, basically if they served more of a purpose, the Great Sea could have been even more intricate. If the fairy fountains were integrated into other islands like on Outset, if the eye reefs were replaced with well-designed islands oozing identity, we wouldn't be having this conversation. As it stands, the Great Sea is an amazing setting for a game that was never utilized to the fullest extent, perhaps due to the strenuous development cycle this game faced, which eventually resulted in that Triforce chart quest existing. Here's another big problem I have with the Great Sea. Digging up treasure chart rewards. The act of doing this isn't the problem. In fact, it's actually quite fun as you're just minding your own business and exploring the ocean. There's nothing quite like leaving all your treasure charts open and sailing off into the unknown, only to see that shining ray of light in the distance. You pull up real close next to it based on the sound of shimmering hope, and you unearth one of a few rewards, like a silver rupee, a heart piece, or a special chart. As you're going about your exploration, yeah, it's pretty fun. But when you're trying to collect every heart piece, or as rupees begin to lose their purpose, things get a bit more complicated. There's usually no way of knowing which treasure charts lead to heart pieces. Like I mentioned a while back, you can find a chart that reveals how many treasure charts can be found on each island that lead to heart pieces, but you'd have to have a brilliant memory to know which treasure charts have already led you to those heart pieces, because by the time you get this special chart, it'll be far past too late. You first have to clear 3 Eye Reef, and then use that treasure chart at the boating course. Super obscure! What most players will likely end up doing in order to finish off their health bar is painstakingly digging up each treasure chart, and with a treasure chart for almost every square on your sea chart, you'll likely be doing this for a while. It's here where the time that sailing can take will really start to get to you. I haven't talked about this yet because it's a very common point of contention with this game, and to be honest, I never really agreed with it. As you're approaching a nearby island, you're given time to imagine what said island will revolve around, as I alluded to previously. On top of that, you're surrounded by possibilities for most of the game. Things to find, enemies to fight, treasure to uncover, you get it. However, this aura of mystery dissipates as you approach the end of the game. By that point, you've mastered the ocean, so there won't be anything left for you to discover. You'll just keep warping and changing the wind direction, and watching the same animations over and over again. It ends up feeling dull as you head from place to place picking up the stuff you missed. So, those are Wind Waker's major issues. But as Link taught us on Outset Island, it's one thing to dwell on those issues, and it's another to do something about them.
Released for the Wii U in 2013, Wind Waker HD sought to improve upon heavily criticized elements of the original game, while staying true to it at the same time. With the swift sale you purchase at Zunari's auction, a favorable wind will always be blowing, meaning there's no need to keep changing the wind's direction over and over again, and you move faster to boot. There are only three Triforce charts to decipher, with the rest of the shards simply appearing in their respective chests. The Wii U gamepad allows you to check your sea chart while simultaneously moving through the ocean, which makes the process of finding treasure or planning a route that much more efficient and, not to mention, fun. And to top it all off, the remaster follows in Skyward Sword's wake and includes the additional hero difficulty level, wherein hearts do not appear as drops, meaning the only way you can heal is by finding a heart piece or container, using a potion, or visiting a fairy fountain. It's a great remaster, even if the lighting engine can often reveal the vertex lighting underneath the cell shading and thus destroying the art style, among other things that I don't particularly care for, like the hero's charm being found at the bottom of the Savage Labyrinth. But regardless of what I think, this remaster isn't actually what I was referring to when I talked about doing something about these problems. If you're like me and you prefer the original game's lighting, item locations, or heck, the original Triforce chart quest, you can mod all of these changes into the GameCube version with better Wind Waker. The game moves much faster, and you can still experience the original game's beautiful timeless cell shading in all of its glory. And yes, this will work on actual hardware. I've tried it and I've recorded it. Here is the Swift sale running on actual hardware. And they said it couldn't be done. Oh, you might be wondering why Link is wearing purple here. Well, that's because this is the Wind Waker randomizer, which is what I really wanted to talk about when it comes to improving the core of Wind Waker. With the setting as open-ended as the Great Sea, Moving the locations of items around would impact how you explore it. But instead of just moving a heart piece or the cabana deed from one place to another, the randomizer, as you probably already know, has the ability to randomize the locations of every single item in the game. You could find bombs in the Wind Temple, or the Skull Hammer from Mila, or the Hookshot from Sorting Mail for Baito. It doesn't matter, anything goes. You could even start without the sword and have to scour the Great Sea for it, thus forcing you to use items exclusively in combat. This randomizer fully converts the Great Sea into a giant puzzle box, and removes the weird progression restrictions imposed on the base game. For example, although the Earth and Wind Temples both appear on your map at the same time, and you can speak to the sages of each temple in any order, you cannot activate the trigger for getting into the Wind Temple until you've completed the Earth Temple. This is because the Hookshot, which you gain in the Wind Temple, is actually used to locate at least two of the Triforce charts, whereas the Mirror Shield isn't used until the final level. If the game were to give you freedom here, you could complete the Triforce of Courage before even entering the Earth Temple, which would cause problems later. The randomizer completely circumvents this thanks to its non-linear nature. It allows the Great Sea to realize its fullest potential. Anything can be anywhere! And that is really exciting. The randomizer breathes new life into this game each and every time I play it. I could be tackling the toughest combat challenges with low health and a limited arsenal on one playthrough, but in another, my biggest hurdle might be trying to figure out which rooms I can visit in dungeons without the required item at my side, because there might still be a sword upgrade in those early rooms. As I've discussed, the Great Sea has lost some of the magic it once held, both due to its problems and the simple fact that I've memorized a lot of what was once intended to hold mystery. So, it's nice to have something rejuvenate the magic it once held with a younger version of me that had never explored it. Then again, I suppose that's just a part of growing up. The world around you tends to lose that magic as you're confronted with sobering realities. That's why I'm really glad that Wind Waker had something to say. Its messages have outlasted my childhood, and will likely stick with me for a lifetime.
finding the courage to answer the call to adventure, developing courage as we explore the unknown, and even using that courage to realize the missteps of those that came before us. All of this plays a part in the game's thesis. Majora's Mask taught us how to be selfless. When looking into potential side quests, it turned the question of what can you do for me into what can I do for you. A lot of this was due to its setting. We knew that everyone was going to die, and with the ability to travel through time, you could choose to ease their anxieties and allow them to die without any regrets. The heart pieces and masks were only the end result. This wasn't just about personal growth. This was about helping others in their time of need. And the game did a fantastic job of making you care. Majora's Mask was directed by Eijiao Numa, who would return as director for Wind Waker, and he remains series producer to this very day. He understood that Zelda quests don't necessarily always need to be arbitrary means to an end. They can play an essential part in the game's message. Let's flash back to Outset Island. You had the option to inspire those around you, which is especially apparent with the kid that watches you jump across rocks. When you arrive at Windfall, you'll have to integrate into a society that is already functioning well without you. There are a bunch of odd characters from all walks of life, and it can be difficult to feel like you're fitting in. Like I've said, it's akin to moving to a new town. An inevitable part of life for many, but still difficult in its own ways. However, you'll find that this town will open up to you if you have the courage to get involved. Whether that means by helping Mrs. Marie with the rowdy killer bees, or by becoming Lenzo's research assistant, there are always ways that you can become a part of this community. In fact, you just might be able to change things for the better. This is Anton, who loves to take walks around town. He'll teach you about cool shortcuts and stuff if you speak to him. This is Linda, who wishes someone would notice her dress. See where this is going? The two of them have an unspoken attraction toward one another, and although Lenzo only wants a pictograph of the moment their eyes meet, you can take this further by showing Anton the pictograph you took. From there, he gathers the courage to tell her how he feels, and if you give them a few days, you can find them on a date in the cafe. It's quests like this, whether you're showing Kamo that you understand how he feels, or getting Mrs. Marie joy pendants for her birthday, or getting the windmill moving again, that demonstrate how you can have an impact on this community. And then there's the grand task of stalking Zunari's shop. In order to do this, you'll need to locate the three Goron merchants and complete that trading quest we discussed. It's satisfying to watch the shop expand and come to life knowing that you had a vital role in its success. And in addition to the heart piece you get from the Goron merchant, you can also get a heart piece for decorating the town. You can fill each spot with whatever ornaments you've acquired, but if you have the cash to spare, you can choose to make the town shine. Finally, you have something tangible to show for all your hard work, and it at least made one person's day. At this point, you've fully integrated into the society that you may have once felt out of place in and now you're an irreplaceable part of it. So what does all of this represent? Well, on top of Windfall Island being an allegory for fitting into a new place as a part of growing up, it also demonstrates how you can share some of your courage with others. Let's start by looking at a small example of this, once again on Windfall, with Mila. You can catch her trying to rob Zunari's store. If you let her express her feelings on how her family fell into a life of poverty after being the richest in town, 
she'll eventually come to the realization that she doesn't need to keep dwelling on circumstances beyond her control. She ends up living a happier life working at the shop, all because she had the courage to admit to herself where she was going wrong. Her family may be struggling, but she is happy being able to work honestly for what she cares about most. Plus, being born into wealth is a lot different from having to work for it, so I have no doubt that she'll grow a lot as a result of this. That's the magic of Wind Waker's world. A lot of the people you meet are ready to make use of the courage they've learned, but they don't know how. Perhaps they're lost or misguided, or simply need a similar spark to the one Link had when his sister was kidnapped. To me, the Great Sea isn't just about personal fulfillment. It's also about demonstrating the courage you develop to others, and this philosophy is on full display as early as Dragon Roost Island. This is Prince Kamali. He's been in a rut after failing to retrieve a scale from Valu, which is a rite of passage among maturing Rito. It's how they get their wings. Valu himself is pretty upset, and he feels that it may be best to just give up on ever getting them. Link offers to calm Valu down, to which Kamali retorts that it's easy to say that you can do anything. He's right. It is easy to say that. But if you keep telling yourself something over and over again, you'll eventually start to believe it, regardless of whether what you're saying reflects positively or negatively on you. So let's show him what a positive mindset can do. After freeing Valu from the torture he's enduring, he gives us Din's pearl and says that he wishes to be just like us. Sound familiar? When you reach the Forest Haven and speak to the Deku Tree, you'll be interrupted by news that the Korok Makar has fallen into the Forbidden Woods. After saving him, you'll realize that his heart was in the right place. Even if it remains unsaid, it's clear that he was drawn towards the woods out of a desire for adventure. He just wasn't ready yet. And if you recall, Link has been in that same place before. Later in the game, you'll meet the ancient sages, who were killed by Ganondorf in another effort to stop Link from well, stopping him. By communicating with them, you'll learn that you need to find their descendants to continue fighting Ganondorf. Like Ocarina of Time, this is an opportunity for growth. But not personal growth, as it was for the Hero of Time. This is an opportunity to help the new sages find their spark. And one of those sages happens to be Makar. By having him venture through the Wind Temple with you, you can help steer him on the right path and find his own purpose. I love this little guy. The same goes for one of my favorite characters in the game, Medley. She doesn't appear very often in the main quest, but her story is emotionally resonant in all the right ways with me. When you first meet her, she'll timidly mention that she's studying to be an attendant, and no doubt inspired by the stories she's heard of your selfless actions in trying to save your sister, she is compelled to ask for your help. She feels as though she's failed Kamali in not being like his mother, and thinks that she may be able to inherit the kind of courage his mom knew from Valu. She desperately wants to have the same confidence in herself that Kamali's mother had. As Kamali finally earns his wings, Medley feels a bit lost, and longs for a purpose in this world. But when she hears the Earth God's lyric, she is overjoyed at the prospect of being able to have an impact, even if it means leaving Kamali behind. Throughout the Earth Temple, you're able to help her build confidence in herself, until the two of you finally make it through to the end of the dungeon. Both of these characters find their purpose through gameplay by being vital in your ability to solve each dungeon, and you're able to watch them grow on their own. You gave them that spark. All they needed to do was make use of it. The Sages are a prime example of how courage is built in a person. As Medley learned, it's not something that can be inherited or imitated. As Makar learned, it's not something that you can force. Both of them just needed a little guidance, 
and because Link had been in both situations before with the Legend of the Hero of Time and the Forsaken Fortress, he was the right person to show them the way. Of course, in order to guide them in developing their courage, Link first had to develop his. Throughout the game, he faces many tests. Smacking into the Forsaken Fortress and winding up unconscious in the ocean? No, he's not quite ready to save his sister. But after being able to help others going through similar problems and facing the uncertainty of the Endless Night, he is finally able to return to the Forsaken Fortress, save all the girls that have been kidnapped, and show that stupid bird who's boss. Even if Ganondorf gets the better of you once more, your friends show up and set his fortress ablaze. It's a fantastic culmination of this phase of the game. Now, no matter what comes next, the death of the sages, or the search for the pieces of the Triforce, you'll always have people to rely on throughout your journey. That's the thing about the Great Sea. It's not just a place for you to grow. It's also a place for you to help and connect with others. Although there are scattered bits and pieces of society stationed across the Great Sea and you might feel alone at times, they haven't gone away forever. In fact, you can keep in touch with them by using the mail system. Grandma might send you some cash to stay afloat, or perhaps you'll get a heartfelt letter of thanks from the mother of a part-timer you helped on Dragon Roost Island. People will reach out to you if you decide to put yourself out there. It takes courage, but it's all worth it just to see that post box bouncing around. I love knowing that I've affected someone, even when I can't be there for them. In all of its facets, The Legend of Zelda The Wind Waker is a game about growing up. Through self-discovery, the exploration of the world beyond, the development of courage, or by simply helping others going through similar trials and tribulations, you can have an impact on the world in your own way. Even if the world you were born into is really messed up. The Great Sea Above exists as an aftermath of a battle that ended long ago. The people of the Great Sea, who had nothing to do with this tragedy, are simply trying to live their lives. They didn't choose to be born here, but they're doing the best they can with what they have. Link is one of those people caught in the middle of it all. With Ganondorf's return, it's as if history is repeating itself. Hyrule is gone, and yet trouble is still brewing. Now, let's talk about something weird that I adore about Zelda ambient cavern music. Ever since Ocarina of Time, the grottos of Zelda have been these ethereal locations far removed from the outside world. Regardless of whether they hold combat challenges, intricate puzzles, or simple rewards, they were an escape. Wind Waker takes place against the backdrop of everything that happened in Ocarina of Time. As such, its cavern music features a similar woodwind motif, but it never ascends into that same whimsical mood. It's as if we aren't supposed to be here like we've stumbled upon a remnant of a bygone era that we had nothing to do with, frozen in time. This is Hyrule Castle. After Link proves himself to the gods, the King of Red Lions reveals to him that the kingdom he once heard about in those stories was sitting beneath the ocean he called home. Everything is intact, including the hills and caves beyond the castle walls. There are murals in the castle's basement honoring the sages from the Hero of Time's era. As a kid, I was mesmerized by this place. Seeing this legendary kingdom frozen in time by a spell from the Master Sword had me in complete awe. The ambience inside the castle is an eerily silent and twisted melody reminiscent of one usually associated with Hyrule.
that is, until Link pulls the sword from its pedestal and allows the minions of Ganon to roam freely. Now I love fighting off all these enemies and stealing their resources as we finally get to hear that familiar castle melody, but in drawing that sword from its pedestal, I've allowed Ganondorf's power to be unleashed. Now what do you think Ganondorf will do with this power? Perhaps take over the Great Sea? No, he doesn't care about the ocean above. What he actually wants is to reunite the Triforce and take over Hyrule. That's right. He wants to take over a kingdom that has been sealed away for eons. Really? That's what you want? Power over a kingdom that's dead and buried? And we're being mixed up in all of this because of it? This means that everything he had inflicted on the Great Sea was all in an attempt to realize his dream. He overran it with monsters. In a search for the descendant of Princess Zelda, he sent the Helmarok King to capture any young girl with long ears, meaning the only reason Errol was kidnapped was because she looked somewhat like Zelda to that damn bird. He hit the Great Sea with the curse of an endless night, as a means of testing Link, to see if he was truly a worthy successor to the Hero of Time. He murdered the Earth and Wind Sages, all for his stupid dream of resurrecting Hyrule. Lerudo in particular was the last of her people, the Zora, while Fado was the last of the Kokiri tribe. And they died for nothing. To say that Ganondorf is a selfish, bitter old man would be the understatement of this century. Meanwhile, all of the people who live in the Great Sea are caught up in this mess, particularly Link and Tetra. Tetra is forced to deal with this sudden revelation that she is the new Princess Zelda, and now she has to live inside the basement of a castle that has been sealed away by the gods. She was pretty good at being a pirate, and suddenly she should have to throw all of that away because of some legend she had nothing to do with? Yeah, that should sound familiar. These kids are simply trying to live their lives to the fullest. Thankfully, Link admirably continues to show us how to turn these circumstances beyond our control into an enlightening opportunity for growth. He is content with the customs of Hyrule and the traditions set in stone, as all he really wants to do is save his sister and grow up. And what's great about experiencing his journey is that we get to watch his courage come together. From being tossed into the ocean like a ragdoll after failing to save his sister, to accepting that he still had some growing to do, to reuniting with his sister and making this journey personal, to flinching at the sight of Ganondorf's ugly mug, to finally standing toe-to-toe -to -toe with him in the final battle. Some legend didn't teach him this courage, he developed it on his own. And we were there with him for every single moment. Every discovery we made was another step forward in his maturity. Every person we decided to help is another opportunity to learn a lesson from the world around us. All because we had the courage to get out there. Every step we take through Ganon's disturbing illusionary room or up the stairs of his foreboding castle is another step closer to stopping this madness. Link never really cared about Hyrule, and neither should Ganon. Link cares about the Great Sea. What's happening now? Even as Link draws the Master Sword from its pedestal, the Blade of Evil's Bane once wielded by the Hero of Time, his first instinct is to slash it about before collecting himself and realizing how important of a moment this is. This Link is not the Hero of Time, nor is he a descendant of him. No matter how badly Ganondorf wants a rematch, Link is the Hero of Winds, a title he earned after much toil and hardship in his own world. In that sense, it's easy to see where Ganondorf is coming from when he says our gods destroyed us. Link was born into the Great Sea, a world that exists as a remnant of the prosperous kingdom of Hyrule. He is sailing on the remains of that kingdom, and he is constantly reminded of it from the customs of Outset all the way up to the present. The sages, Medley and Makar, their purposes came from a need to ease the regrets of their ancestors. 
reminders of Hyrule even exist in the game's soundtrack. From hearing a piece of Kakariko in Windfall Island, to hearing the lost woods inside the forest haven. From Ganon's perspective, everyone was born destined to face turmoil. But getting this far is proof enough that he was wrong. This is perhaps the greatest setting for a final battle I have ever seen in a Zelda game. It isn't just a clash of good versus evil, it's also a clash of generations. An old man caught up in the past against a couple of kids who want change. It's a battle that will continue to be fought for years to come in our world, and it feels incredible to see it represented in an emotional climax to our journey. It helps that each phase of this battle is a ton of fun, as you continue to keep track of Ganon's various puppet forms, use each corresponding item wherever necessary, and barely sneak in a shot from your light arrows. And once you defeat him, he leaves you to ascend to the top of his castle in dead silence. A final test of your courage. What could he possibly have in store? What could await me at the top? The only way out is through, and there's no turning back now. Having witnessed all of this and wanting to act before Ganondorf places his hand on the fully assembled Triforce, the King of Red Lions finally steps in to prevent Ganon from fulfilling his desire. In order to end the strife that he inadvertently created for the people above the waves, he requests that the gods drown him, Ganondorf, and the rest of Hyrule for all eternity. When the final showdown with Ganondorf transpires, for all intents and purposes, he has nothing left to fight for. What we're taking part in here is a fight between hope for the future and a tired old man that simply cannot let go of the past, making for one of the greatest final bosses I have ever experienced. It may be simple, but it is very effective. The sounds of the rushing waterfalls are overpowered by the dire music and the swords clashing, and yet, all you really have to do is figure out when to strike. Like the rest of the game, it's about finding the perfect opportunity. The king is no different from Ganondorf. He lived dwelling on his regrets as he was forced to make a difficult decision to save his people. But from the extraordinary display of Link and Tetra's courage, he knew that he could trust them to sustain hope when darkness comes. With both the king and Ganondorf clinging to the past, they're a lot like the hero of time. He tended to dwell on the past and needed help in accepting how time had changed things. It's fitting that the last survivors of Ocarina of Time would be no different. And that's why this game is a perfect allegory for the dilemma its developers faced. With the weight of Ocarina of Time on their shoulders, they chose to create something for a new era of Zelda fans. The gorgeous new art style is symbolic of this, as is the entire tale of a fight for the new generation. But in addition, The Legend of Zelda The Wind Waker is a beautiful coming-of-age story about self-discovery and finding your own definition of courage. In creating this game, the developers have scattered the seeds of the future, even if it means having the courage to leave the past behind forever.
At the cafe bar on Windfall Island, the woman that runs the place will say, You know, the world's a crazy place, kiddo. You're still young, so you probably don't know about what goes on out there beyond the comfortable confines of your home. She's right. The world is a crazy place. A dangerous place. A scary place. It takes courage just to live in it. But like the king says, it's the only world we've got. That's why I'm glad I'm here. And I'm glad I got out there. I continue to use the courage I've built and look toward the future. The king's words have not fallen on deaf ears. Here's the thing. It can be hard to maintain hope as you face a continuous cycle of circumstances beyond your control. That's why the king only relayed those words to people he knew were courageous enough to understand them. As we know, the king learned something as he watched Ganondorf bring about his own demise. In that moment, he had the courage to face his regrets. Lincoln Tetra had the courage to heed his words and look to the future, leaving the game on a perfect note. But when you're a kid, it's difficult to extrapolate all of this. When I finished this game, I was experiencing what were quite possibly the happiest days of my life. I had great friends with many similar interests, and we indulged ourselves in our favorite hobbies. Aside from minor childhood annoyances like homework and bedtimes, things were pretty good. It's fitting, then, that the thematic conclusion of Wind Waker would go right over my head. I didn't really have any life experience to apply these words to. All I saw was an epic battle of good versus evil. It wouldn't be until a couple of years later that I would be forced to grow up and I would gradually develop true courage. Now, I'm going to tell you a story. It's not one I tend to share very often, and it will be a bridge to save time, but I want you to have an understanding of how Wind Waker continues to inspire me. When I was 11 years old, I was diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia. In retrospect, my childhood ended right then and there, and I don't think I was ever the same since then. I was provided with diversions throughout the duration of my treatment, but I won't mince words. It sucked. It took about three and a half years for me to come out of it, but I ended up feeling lost afterward. I no longer had leukemia to use as a crutch for keeping up with school or meeting new people. On top of that, because leukemia came out of nowhere during such a great time in my life, I began to expect terrible things would happen whenever things were going, in my own words, too well. This led to me developing a severe anxiety disorder and quarreling with the people I love, as my fears would be verified by a death in the family, a setback in my own mental health, or more recently, a massive global shutdown. Out of a longing for comfort, I popped in a game that I love dearly, Wind Waker. And as I played through it for the trillionth time, its words finally began to resonate with me. Link's actions began to resonate with me, especially considering how reactionary I can be sometimes. But most importantly, the game reminded me that I was still here. I'm still breathing, and I've had the courage to keep going in spite of everything. All I really wanted was to live my life, and I felt like the world was preventing me from doing that. But everyone has their own version of living, and I refused to accept my version of that as my reality. I wanted to be traveling, hanging out with friends every day, doing everything imaginable, instead of grounding myself and realizing that I have a pretty good life. I may not have a ton of friends, but the ones I do have care about me, and I care about them too. I may not be traveling right now, but at least I have a goal that I can work to fulfill. I've created a dream job for myself, and I'm never going to take it for granted. I have an opportunity now, in spite of everything, to have an impact on people. All of this is my version of living. And I'm happy with that. I'm here because I continue to have the courage to see the other side of things. The courage to keep going. And I'd love to find out what life has in store for me. 
What I want you to do now is recognize how far you've come against all odds. If you feel helpless as an observer of our world, as if there is nothing left to believe in, know that it takes courage to never lose hope. So hang on to it. Rest assured, good or bad, nothing lasts forever. And I believe I am concrete proof of that philosophy. If you're strong enough to stay here and fight, then you're a hero to me. All of this is what Wind Waker taught me. It renewed my wonder in the world around me simply by reminding me that strife can be an opportunity for growth, nor am I defined by my past. I'm here now, and whatever happens next, the wind will guide me. I'm Liam Triforce, and I love Wind Waker with all my heart. Thanks for watching.